I'm Daryl Scott. I'm the Operations Manager at WCBU, Peoria Public Radio at Bradley University. Proud to be part of the team. And a lot of us uh, with name tags here tonight, you can probably wave and say a quick hello and thank you uh, to those who kind of helped put this on. While we're doing thank yous, I'd like to say thank you to NPR Illinois, AARP, for helping to establish this ongoing series. To the members of the panel here, which you'll get to meet in just a moment. And also to the city of Peoria, uh, and Jason Meeks, and the folks here who allowed us to use this beautiful venue, City Hall. We appreciate their support. And also to Tresker's Bakery, which uh, we appreciate their support as well, and their partnership. Well, on behalf of everyone at the station, I want to say welcome, and we look forward to hearing from you tonight. You know, we're all media consumers, and in the last two years, it doesn't matter where you get your news, if it's public radio, which we hope it is, television, the newspaper, or your social media news feed, you can't help but hear in the last two years about the state's financial situation. And there's been a lot of talk, talk radio, online, chatter, with amongst your neighbors. But we're going to do something tonight that's a little bit different than talk. We're going to go beyond that. We're going to listen. We want to hear your stories tonight. We want to talk about the road to recovery and what that means and some of the possible outcomes, which we'll hear tonight. So thank you for sharing your story. And we promise the conversation will not end tonight. Public radio stations like NPR Illinois and Peoria Public Radio are committed to carrying your voice forward in the months and years ahead. So thank you for your participation and thanks for listening to Public Radio. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Mr. Randy Eccles, General Manager of NPR Illinois at Springfield. Randy? Thank you, Daryl. Uh, thank you for taking the time tonight to come here and share in this event. Uh, it was a few months ago when the budget was still in year two of not being passed that we thought it was really important to uh, go around the state and do a listening tour to find out how well people understood the impact of what was happening. Now, we've gotten a budget since then, but that's only for a year. The cycle is going to start all over again, and it's going to be a gubernatorial election year. So. Uh, we are touring around, as, as uh, we were talking earlier, we've been, I, I'm out of the Springfield uh, Public Radio Station, and we're very happy that Peoria Public Radio is partnering with us, along with AARP Illinois. Um, and we're going around the state listening. We're happy to be here in Peoria. As Daryl said, you'll be able to hear more of this later. We'll have it on YouTube. Uh, we'll also have it uh, on Peoria Public Radio's website. And uh, I'm sure Daryl will probably touch on something in the morning. But uh, in the meantime, listen tonight. And we really appreciate you participating and giving us a sense of what our future coverage might need to be. So with no further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Bob Gallo. He is the uh, executive director for Illinois AARP and our sponsor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Randy, and thank you all for being here this evening. Um, the way this got started, I was with a, 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 my volunteer state president, Rosanna Marquez, uh, and we were on a walk one day. We happened to be in San, San Antonio, Texas for our, our regional meeting. And we were thinking about all the things that ARP has fought for in Illinois all, all over the years, whether it's home and community-based services, whether it's fair utility rates, um, and all, all kinds of issues that are important to our members age 50 plus and their families. And we were thinking about the fact of, yes, we've, we continue to fight for those things and make sure that tax dollars provide for those who need help the most. And I started saying, you know, enough is enough. 
And that turned into what we're doing here today and what Randy has showed that what we're doing all over the state is that after almost now, it was almost three years without a budget. And that has devastated so many nonprofit organizations who actually deliver the services that the most needy and vulnerable in our state need. Even here in, in the Peoria area, adult daycare services have closed their doors. They've laid off their staff. That's hurt other individuals, whether it's an individual spouse or a son or a daughter who would take their parent to these centers for the day so that they could go about their business that they needed to take care of. And now they're scrambling and struggling to try to figure out what to do. Or in Alton, Illinois, where individuals that we heard from were only getting one meal delivered to them a week for the Meals on Wheels program when before they were getting five. And you know, we often think about the fact that our tax dollars um, go to the state and the state does these things for us. Well, in many ways, it's just a pass-through. It goes to provider organizations and other facilities and institutions that help individuals day by day. And these individuals who work for these what are called provider organizations for nonprofits, they have employees and volunteers that they need to support. And if they don't have the funds, they can't provide the support. And so there's $14 billion of unpaid bills that Illinois owes them and other individuals. You've heard the news stories. You saw, saw the fact that a budget was finally passed. And I'd like to congratulate members of the General Assembly who stood up and said enough was enough too because they became leaders in a sense when the leadership of the state couldn't get along, couldn't get past their differences, their ideologies, or whether they like each other or not. But the purpose of this effort that we started called Enough is Enough was to go to the so-called rank and file, the individuals who represent you in your districts, and for you to talk to them and say, you represent me and my interest and my community and my friends and my family and my neighborhood, and you can no longer say that you're waiting for the leadership to do something because they're not doing something. So we hope that this evening, after we hear some of the other stories from our panelists this evening of the effect that this has caused, that you'll also share your feelings with us as well, and also to go back to your representatives, and if you don't know who they are, find out who they are, and ask them, what did you do in this mess, and where do we go from here? Because it's not over yet. Illinois was at the precipice. We're about to fall over. We're still at the precipice. So now it's going to take even more responsibility and cooperation in government to get Illinois back on a path, to keep Illinois back on a path to fiscal health. So thank you for being here this, this evening, and I'm going to turn it over to Tanya Kuntz. Thank you, Bob. I'm Tanya Kuntz. I'm the news director at Peoria Public Radio. It's nice to see you this evening. Thank you for coming out. And we are looking forward to the conversation that's ahead. We'd like to take care of some housekeeping. First and foremost, we'll ask you to take a second and make sure your cell phones are on silent. That can't hurt. It might help. Just to double check. Um, if you know someone who can't be here this evening, we'd like for them to know that this forum is uh, being live streamed and you can get to that live stream via our website, peoriapublicradio.org. 
We're also going to be doing some live tweeting, thanks to WCBU Peoria Public Radio News reporter Cass Harrington. We appreciate her willingness to participate in tonight's event because you might know her from Morning Edition and News in the Morning. So this is a pretty long day for Cass. We're glad she's here with us and we appreciate it. Our handle for tweeting is at WCBU Radio and we'd like for you to use the hashtag, if you will, ILPassDue. We'll start off with some introductions and opening comments, and then we'll take comments and questions from anyone who wishes to share. We're accepting your questions and comments also via Twitter. Again, that's at WCBU Radio, hashtag ILPassDue. For those wishing to speak, we ask that you do come to one of the two microphones in the room, the podium microphones. That's so everybody in the chamber can hear you, but maybe more importantly, so our audience that is joining us via live video stream, so they can hear you as well. We, we realize in tonight's events that we're talking about our personal community and state financial health. It's a deeply felt situation and life-changing, in fact, for some of us. We'd like to make sure that we're treating each other tonight with the respect that we would all like to be treated with. This is not a political conversation. This is not a conversation to place blame or find fault. This is a policy conversation to find out more about how the state's budgetlessness and massive debt is impacting our friends, neighbors, and the communities in the greater Peoria area. So exactly what has it meant locally to be without a budget for two years that started July 1, 2015 and ran through June 30th of this year? As of 15 days ago, the state achieved a $36 billion budget paired with a $5 billion income tax increase. The state has the highest property tax rate in the country and one of the lower income tax rates still today. And Illinois has somewhere in the neighborhood of $8 billion in back paid bills that will not be covered in that budget, and pension liability that is hard for most anyone to fathom that rests somewhere around $130 billion. And most concerning probably in the day is likely the fact that the state budget blueprint has a wrinkle that means there is still no funding for primary and secondary education. So with that rough overview, we want to at this point introduce our panel. I think I should take a moment and say thank you to Senator Dave Kaler. I believe he is the one state lawmaker that is with us this evening. Senator Kaler, we thank you for being here. If I have missed anyone, would you please raise your hand, maybe stand up? I think I've got everybody. I think I covered the crowd, I think. Um, so um, to my left, this is Sean Crawford. He's the news director at NPR Illinois and host of State Week in Review. You hear that show on Peoria Public Radio. Uh, Sean became news director of NPR Illinois in 2009. He has a master's degree in public affairs reporting and was the Illinois Public Radio State House Bureau Chief and covered Illinois state government for more than a dozen years 
and more than a couple times he has combed the state budget book with the press briefing that we receive, reporters receive, just before the final vote on the budget. He's also trained a number of master's degree seeking reporters. He's helped train them, including me. <laughs> All right, so then we go to Michael. Michael Allen is the CFO of OSF Healthcare System. He joined OSF Healthcare System in September 2015 with about 30 years of experience in business and the healthcare industries, primarily in Wisconsin and Minnesota. He's a CPA with a bachelor's degree from Illinois State University, so he's no stranger to the state of Illinois, and he also holds a master's degree. OSF has the only level one trauma center, the Children's Hospital of Illinois in the area, I should say, the Children's Hospital of Illinois and includes 10 hospitals in the upper two-thirds of the state outside Cook and the Collar counties. That places the healthcare provider in a position to do a lot of business with the state and uh, serving a lot of people in the greater central Illinois area. Beth Kreider-Derry is the Regional Superintendent of Schools for Peoria. Derry is a local native and longtime educator with a master's degree in instructional curriculum and administration. She started as the Assistant Regional Superintendent in 2011 and has been serving as the Regional Superintendent since January 2014. The Peoria County Regional Office of Education handles a multitude of state and federal issues for 18 public school districts and one special education cooperative. And last but not least is Jim Runyon. He is the immediate past chair of Illinois Partners for Human Services and current chair of the Peoria chapter. He's also the vice president of government affairs for Easter Seals Central Illinois. Jim holds a master's degree with more than two decades in uh, experience in primary education, secondary education, and special education coupled with administration. As the vice president of Easter Seals, oversees he oversees early intervention systems in 11 central Illinois counties, numerous grant-funded programs and services, and government affairs affecting national, state, and local public policy. As the past chair of the Illinois Partners for Human Services, he's worked to represent a vast number of human services in the state. And as chair of the Peoria chapter, he now works very closely with 30 local service providers. With that, I think we will now move to our panelists and ask you to start with uh, opening comments. And Jim, can we start with you? Thank you, Tanya. I guess before I go straight into the issues related to um, the past couple of years, I just want to kind of remind us of some things that we all should know. That, that healthy, thriving communities are really focused on the well-being of all of its members. And as healthy, thriving communities, which is what we all want, um, human service providers are a kind of a cornerstone to that. We provide services on the behalf of the community for those who are often most at risk. There is sometimes a desire to kind of separate into two groups. 
kind of us against them, those who need those services and those who don't. But I think if we were all really honest about that, we recognize that if we look at our family and friends and social circles, we're either all probably receiving a human service of some kind, no one or no number, numerous people who are receiving those services, or we're all just one step away from them. One house fire, one birth of a dis developmentally disabled grandchild, we're all users of human services. I kind of start there because what has occurred over these past many years, not just the last couple, has been a dismantling of the human service structure across the entire state. Um, yes, the last few years have been particularly difficult, but it has been decades of underfunding human services in this state and in many areas, especially developmental disabilities and some other areas, we rank 49th or 48th amongst the 50 states. So it's not like everything was rosy and wonderful up until just two and a half or three years ago. Uh, we've, we've seen a steady decline in, in those kinds of services. So where are we right now? Well, as Tanya said, I, I'm, I, I finish at my three-year term as uh, chair of Illinois Partners for Human Services tomorrow. I'm traveling to Chicago, and I transition that to my next, to my vice president. And so for my three years, I've been, a, been very much involved in the struggles uh, surrounding the budget. We represent over 850 human service organizations from across the state. Every sector, every type of human service, they're a part of the 850. So the impact on us of this mess has been varied. I mean, we can't talk singularly. We can't say, well, everybody uh, saw this happen or saw that happen or were impacted negatively in this way. It really has been a mixed bag for us. And that's true here locally as well. Some services have pretty much gone on unabated, largely due to consent decrees uh, that from, the federal, from federal judges who have required that payments move forward and services continue. But for other services uh, who are not covered under those kinds of consent decrees, it's been a complete collapse. And for them, as was mentioned earlier, uh, services have ended, staff members have been laid off, or if not laid off, have left their positions because of the lack of stability and security in those roles. So for us, as we move towards recovery, uh, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, we, we need to reestablish that talent pool. We need to reconnect uh, and build relationships of trust with our, those we serve who have, in many ways, have been abandoned, uh, not only by us, but by the state government. And we have to kind of re-energize a very divided populace with the idea that our end goal really is uh, thriving communities. 
where we really do value the well-being of each person and are focused on every person achieving their full potential. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. Beth? Good evening, everyone. Again, my name is Beth, and I would like to thank NPR and AARP for hosting this this evening. So we do have a chance to tell some of these stories, and the lens that I'm bringing is education. I wish tonight was completely a post-mortem. Education is literally still hanging by fingernails as we do not have a true budget yet for K-12. Let me explain. There is money for education in the budget that was passed. However, it is dependent upon there being an evidence-based formula in how we distribute those dollars. There is no evidence-based formula. So I'm here to also sound the alarm. We are not out of the woods yet. We need an evidence-based formula to be able to have money for schools to start. My daughter starts her senior year on August 16th. I can already see August on the calendar. Your school districts in Peoria County all passed their budgets on time. Budgets that they somewhat had to play as a guessing game where they were throwing arrows at targets that were moving and shifting and they weren't quite sure, but they did what they were supposed to do and with as much integrity as possible, passed those budgets and then played wait and see. And we are still waiting and seeing. Senate Bill 1 is out there. The legislature did their job, passed Senate Bill 1. Why is this even important? What is evidence-based funding? And if anyone has a question about that, we can go deeper. But just, just to, to give a little bit of flavor to it, I was beyond blessed to be born to the principal of Dunlap High School. And the quality of my education, unfortunately, at times was related to my zip code. And in the state of Illinois, right now, the zip code that you are born into can very significantly determine the kind of education that you get because it's based on property tax values. And that's not the same across Illinois. The formula is supposed to balance that out. It's supposed to help um, mediate some of those differences, and it does not. We are 50th out of 50 with how we fund education. And so something has to change, and that's in the mix that's thrown into this entire conversation about how we go about getting a budget in the state of Illinois. On a personal note, I would just like to share that I manage multi-million dollar grants for the Illinois State Board of Education for services in Peoria County. Everything from servicing homeless students to preventing truancy. I am the contract for the Illinois Virtual School. There's a lot that we do out of the Peoria Regional Office of Education. And when you don't know when the check is going to come in the mail, it becomes a cash flow issue. When the clock came around January, it started to get very challenging, and you start to worry about if you're going to make payroll. So as regional superintendent, I go to my staff and I say, to the dollar, please tell me for every single person that works for this institution, what it will cost to pay each one of them every paycheck through June 30th. We figured out that number and we worked backwards. We cut everything that we could think of that wasn't necessary. We halted all mileage, all travel, all that kind of stuff, you know, that is normally reimbursed, especially for truancy services where they drive all the way from Elmwood to Chillicothe. So we halted all of that reimbursement to make it all the way through. And then in March, personal disclosure, I was at the hairdresser and I had the cape on 
and my office manager was working late and was opening the mail, and she sent me a picture via text of a million dollars in checks from the state of Illinois. That was this March, and it was money from fiscal year 16, but it filled a hole, and I burst into tears because I could make payroll through June 30th. That meant no one would be laid off. Everyone would get a paycheck through June 30th. And everyone in that salon said, what is wrong with that lady? <laughs> and unfortunately, I looked around and I said, I just got a million dollars from the state of Illinois. And everyone in there went, oh, they understood. And so that's just a, that's just a small example. And I would like to conclude with this. Without Easter seals, I taught kindergarten, first grade, and special education for Peoria Public Schools for 17 years. Without the services they provide, those children are not ready for the academics and what happens in kindergarten and first grade. I have OSF sitting on this side of me. If children are not healthy and ready for school, I can't do my job. The social services are just as important as what happens in K-12 because it is a complete ecosystem. One can't happen without the other. And having taught kindergarten, I've taken those values to this office. We collaborate, we cooperate, we problem solve, we use our words, we don't hit each other, um, we play nicely. And bringing those things to this office has been a challenge because I don't always see that. And that has been one of my challenges. So thank you very much for letting me come tonight and share my story. Well, thank you. Uh, my name is Mike Allen. I'm the Chief Financial Officer for OSF Healthcare System. I'm from Illinois. I did spend 14 years in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and I came back about 20 months ago for this opportunity to work um, back in my home state and with OSF. And so, uh, thank you for having a, having me here. Um, you know, I appreciate the stories from Jim and Beth on services and education. Obviously, we are in the healthcare services uh, business. I'm going to take a little bit different angle. We could go and talk about that piece of it as well. Um, but when I talk about the state of Illinois, um, as the chief financial officer, I think of three things. It's slow pay, low pay, and um, economics. And I think all three are very important um, because of the and, and, and I think, as Jim said, this isn't a new problem. This is a slow burn. This has been going on for uh, when I was back in Illinois 20 years ago, um, it, was, it was part of the healthcare um, equation back then that we didn't get paid quickly um, for providing services for Medicaid. But it's become a new and, and bigger issue. And you know, as of now, uh, the state of Illinois for um, Medicaid and uh, for the state of Illinois health plan covering the employees of the state of Illinois, when we provide services, um, the state now owes us uh, an additional $143 million um, for the services we provide across the state. Um, some of those from the uh, employees that we serve, as employees of the state of Illinois, um, when I started 20 months ago, we provided emergency room services, did surgeries, um, saw folks in clinics, and we're just now getting paid 20 months later for services that, that we provided 20 months ago when I first started um, back here in Peoria. So um, the $143 million, um, while we're a large organization and we do have some scale, uh, we're able to survive a little bit um, better than smaller agencies. Um, but it, it is starting to pinch uh, our ability to deliver on our uh, mission that uh, we have to serve everybody who comes through our doors. 
Um, so that's the, the slow pay. The low pay is um, similar statistics on, on the Medicaid side of the equation. We're 50th out of 50 in the country on the level of Medicaid funding we provide um, across uh, the state. And um, we fund the bare minimum here in Illinois. And so that, that, uh, that really has a pinch on us. And in terms of the services we provide, that, that is about $100 million a year in lower funding than we receive than, than say a hospital in Missouri or in Indiana or somewhere or a health system in those those states. Uh, on average, it's about $100 million a year difference in, in payment. And so, you know, that starts to pinch our budget and how we can deliver services across the state um, where we, where we um, operate. And then the third part is economics. Um, I think Others have touched on it already, um, but we are also um, uh, we're a healthcare provider, and and um, we do we do take care of everyone, but we're also an economic engine. Um, we provide jobs. I think uh, we have 19,000 employees across um, the state. We have 8,500 here in Peoria in the area, and uh, so we're also an economic engine, and um, that's a, that's an important part of any community of taking care of everybody in the community is being able to provide good jobs um, and the economic stabilization and base so we can then use those resources to take care of others as well. And um, that gets pinched in, in all of this too. And this is starting to impact our ability to um, fund capital projects. It's impacting um, our ability to to take risks and to grow our business, um, you know, maybe continue to grow it so we, we have more jobs. Um, and more economic vitality, and uh, all of those plans are starting to, you know, have started to become put on hold, and we, we're slowing everything down. Um, I'll just kind of finish with: I spent 14 years in the state of living in the state of Minnesota, and uh, working in Wisconsin as well. And um, you know, it was it did strike me when I got there. It took me a, a year or so to figure it out, but um, you know, our the, the government system there, same challenges. We have a lot of the similar similar things going on, but. Um, they were able to resolve their budget issues two years in advance, um, had a biennium budget. Um, didn't always work perfectly, but it pretty much um, every year or every two years they were able to resolve those issues and, and uh, everything functioned. Um, and when I was back up in Wisconsin um, visiting six months ago, there were cranes building things in downtown La Crosse. There was vitality there. There was growth there. Um, and I don't see that in Illinois, and it really makes me sad as a citizen of Illinois who's been um, who spent 38 years and now two years back and um, and so it, it, uh, it really breaks my heart a little bit so I'm really interested in good solutions I'm really interested in, in funding the right kinds of things and getting this uh, state out of the 50th out of 50 and doing everything we can to do that so be glad to uh, answer and talk about anything else related to health care as well Mike, Beth, Jim, thank you. Sean, before we get to you, we'd like for anybody who has a question or comment in the room to start thinking about making their way to the podium so we can move right to your questions and comments uh, while Sean does some opening remarks. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I think I thought I might mention that one of the questions I get quite a bit from, from folks has been, uh, well, if there's no budgets, 
At least the state's not spending money. Well, that's not true. In fact, the state's been spending money at a rapid pace. And one of the reasons you hear a lot about this backlog of bills really increasing is because of things that were talked about earlier, such as these court orders, court decrees that require the state to spend at a certain level. That level is based on the old tax increase that was in place, went away, and a new one was just put into place. But they've been spending like they had that money for a couple of years. The courts have said they had to do it. The backlog has continued to rise. The bills have not been paid. Of course, bills are also um, paid uh, interest on many of these overdue bills, so that's an added cost. So things have just really gotten bad. I said it's like, a little like uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not in, uh, in Illinois. Just when you think you've seen it all, you haven't. Um, the state of Illinois has run into a lot of financial problems. It had financial problems before Bruce Rauner took over. It's had a lot more recently. And uh, we can get into some more of those as we go along some of the issues that were brought up here. I'll, I'll go ahead and turn it back over. Thank you, Sean. Does anybody have any questions or comments at this point? Because if you don't, I am more than happy to start firing questions. I'm curious by nature. <laughs> All right. Um, Jim and Beth, or Jim or Beth, would you speak to, maybe Beth, I'd like for you to start, I think. We were talking today, and you were talking about the budgets that, that school districts have passed and how they created them, and, and you mentioned that in your opening comments. Um, how, <laughs> How is it to create a drop-dead budget, like a this is this is worst-case scenario budget, and what does a best-case scenario budget look like? Or because school, many school districts have two working budgets potentially in front of them right now, right? I'm not sure what a what a being able to pre-plan a budget looks like. Um, let's start with this. School districts were operating in an environment this time around where they were having to project for a coming year. First of all, what were going to be the dollars following all the students? That's the general state aid. What were their property tax values going to be? And could there have been the property tax freeze? That directly, obviously, impacts school districts, and they didn't know would it pass, would it not pass, and under which scenario, if there was a cap, what should they do with their rates? And it was constantly a moving target, so they had to make their best projections. Then in my world, I told all of the directors of all of my different programs, I need you to make two and a half budgets. Budget number one is status quo, what we had awarded as grants, what would that look like, best case scenario. Scenario number two is doomsday. We don't have a budget, the dollars are not flowing, what does that look, look like, who's laid off first, what services do we cut, what order do we cut them? And then the half is if the check doesn't come in July, then maybe it will come in December and how do we make it to that point with cash flow issues? So a lot of energy, time and effort is spent on doing that versus being innovative and thinking outside of the box and entrepreneurial and supporting students and families. Are there any school districts that you've 
talked to or worked with that are concerned about whether or not they will be opening their doors in, in August if, if, if this remains where it is today. School districts with strong property values are not as concerned. They have those dollars coming in. However, Peoria Public Schools, which has challenges, is very concerned. Without those general state aid dollars, they could stay open for a while. I run the Peoria Regional Learning Center. It's a high school out at Wildlife Prairie where kids get a second chance to get a high school diploma. I don't get anything but general state aid, the dollars that follow the students. By generous donations, I maybe can stay open a semester. And from what I understand in Southern Illinois, there are schools that won't open. They have to have those dollars on arrival. Tanya, we have a question back here. Um, my son, it was his idea to come here. Um, he Would you is, tell us uh, who you are? My name is Lori England, and I am um, the mom of Jesse England, who went to Easter Seals, still does. I work in healthcare at a critical access hospital down in Lincoln, Illinois. My husband is in construction, so this has touched our family oh, every which way it can. So my question is, um, at work I hear about how uh, critical access hospitals are kind of being looked at because they're an expensive way to provide health care compared to what a larger hospital like OSF can do. The volume and the numbers help them. So is critical access hospital healthcare going to be one of those things that has to go away? I guess I don't know, no, I don't know what could possibly go away. If, if we don't have our schools and we don't have our healthcare, well, how do we, how do we fix this? I, we see what the problem is, but we don't understand what the fix is. Nobody wants to stop it. You know, I, you know from being in you know the healthcare industry, I can speak a little bit about that. The, um, I think the challenge in a critical access hospital is is um, funding, and to some degree, the federal um, government has has ensured that there's. A funding formula available to keep those open. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been open even as long as they they have really. And so that's good. Um, it becomes a fight too for expertise and um, the ability to attract um, you know a, a skilled labor force that uh, can can serve the patients in those settings. And um, it's it's may potentially like a lot of other things. Uh, it it takes some scale to to operate nowadays, and that's. Um, you know, a blessing and a burden both, and, and but it is a reality. And I do think there will be certain critical access hospitals that end up becoming, you know, ambulatory centers, outpatient centers. Um, I think those will continue. I think the healthcare will always be needed. Um, but, uh, and, and if the federal government decides uh, legislatively that they're not willing to continue to fund that critical access designation in the way they have in the past, it will, it will impact them, so. No question. I, I guess I would add this. Um, 
you know, at the same time we've been going through the, the troubles here in the state, for the last several months, we at the federal level have been debating the future of the Affordable Care Act and possible, possible replacement of it. Um, those proposals currently in place at the federal level um, are incredibly scary for those who are at risk in our communities. Um, not only persons with disabilities, but low-income folks, a large section of our populace will be very negatively impacted. So for a healthy state, the changes at the federal level with health care would be challenging. For a state in the, that is not healthy, like Illinois is at this point, uh, it will just be devastating. I, I'm glad that you know in the last day or so the governor has finally spoken out about that he is he's been silent about that up to this point uh, and who knows what the future it seems to change by the hour uh, what the current proposals are and and how they're going to impact everyone um, but uh, that kind of double whammy of upset at the state level and healthcare disruption at the federal level will will really have a negative impact. I'm was oh. Oh. No. Oh. Yeah. Hi. I'm um, well thank you. I was just one one. How can we make sure these programs have the funding they need while being wise with our money and not raising our taxes? He is also asking what's the fix if you don't raise taxes? What else can you do? Sure. It, it, that's the dilemma. You know, that's that's where we're stuck. Um, folks like to believe there's enough waste and fraud in the systems that if we eliminate waste and fraud, you know, and, and then if you ask folks to put your finger on where is that waste and fraud, point that out so that we can go after that. Um, it's a very difficult thing for folks to do. Um, yes, there's the dilemma. Uh, let me give you kind of one example of that. I, I, my day job is working for Easter Seals, and we kind of specialize in working with young children with autism. Uh, one example of kind of where are we now that the budget's been passed is um, the autism program, which goes by the acronym TAP, and TAP is the only state funding that goes to assist children and families with autism. Uh, luckily, in this past fiscal year, we had that funding. Uh, the governor did not include it in his budget. In the budget that was just enacted and through the override, it is included. Uh, but the governor has, has said that programs like that that are grant funded, uh, he likely won't fund. He has the power to do that. He'll just say, we're not going to do that. Not going to give a contract, not going to allocate those funds. 
So we're on again, off again, on again, off again. And for families that we serve, uh, that funding is really a lifeline. And I'll kind of finish with this, just because most folks don't know, Medicaid is a, a lifeline for a lot of people in the state of Illinois. But in Illinois, uh, um, Medicaid won't pay for autism-specific services. So for those families who are served through Medicaid, who have a child with autism, it has been this state funding that has kept them afloat. So we hope that the governor will see to reason and will uh, make sure that the autism program is funded and moves forward, but no guarantees at this point. And so, it, you know, the advocacy isn't done just because we have a budget. It just continues and continues. Please, if you have a question, we'd love to hear it. Or a comment. Judith Stanley. And I don't have a question. I'm thinking out loud, which may not be correct in any way, so somebody can address that perhaps. But I'm trying to think of the whole problem. Why is it? Why is it? Why is our state so, it shouldn't be the bottom of the list financially, but it is. So. Politics aside, how could a pool of honest, prudent, qualified accountants from all over the state representing all kinds of services get together in a huge meeting and be hired like a like a, a, a group that is paid to fix things, say, okay, you get this many dollars and this long to try to fix it. Okay, accountants, th go to work. How can you solve this? Let's look at it from a different perspective. There must be a way. Uh, there are so many things that influence our community that need uh, need our dollars. So, Beth would like to speak to I that. I would love Judith, to comment you. on that. Thank you for those comments because I've thought the same thing many times. I'm going to take on one of the elephants in the room. I pay into the teacher retirement system. I have since I was 22 years old. My father retired from the Dunlap School District with over 36 years of service. My brother teaches. Um, I don't pay Social Security. I never have, besides teenage jobs. So I'm relying on that pension, it's all I've got. I have faithfully made payments my entire career. And as I see it, and the way that I describe it when folks ask me about how do we get out of this mess or how did we get to this mess, the state of Illinois wanted to keep a level of services, services that are important, services that are necessary, but when the challenge came to pay for it, they dipped into those pension systems to balance it. And we're, we're out of the equity. <laughs> we're out of time. It has reached that nexus where we can't do that anymore. And again, I have faithfully paid in, and I know that there will possibly be some adjustments to my pension before I retire, and I understand that. 
However, that doesn't solve the problem today right now. And one of the people that I appreciate and that I follow out of the tax and accountability, and I'm going to get this wrong, but Ralph Martiri has some suggestions as how to amortize some of those pension payments. But truly, when you unravel the sweater and get down to the essence, is that really is where the genesis of a lot of our problems that we are now having to face is we kind of kick the can down the road one too many times. And so we really have to figure that piece out. The, um, if I can comment on that, Certainly, too, Mike. I mean... Mike, hold on one second. Uh, those of you who have questions, would you please make your way to the microphone so we can make sure that we get to you ASAP, if that's all right. Yeah, great. Thank you. Please go ahead. You know, I think we all wish we had the sort of magic answer for, <laughs> you know, how did we get here and how do we get out of it? Uh, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, that Illinois is, is uh, used in the same sentence as Puerto Rico in terms of... You know, a municipal a new municipality that, that took bankruptcy, and and um, but I did read a recent article out of the Wall Street Journal that said, you know, you know, is is Illinois Puerto Rico, and, and sort of the encouraging news was, answer is no. Um, Illinois has a good economic base, has a uh, you know has a lot of underpinnings economically that that would prevent it or keep it from becoming Puerto Rico, where there is sort of no way out. So I, I took that as hope. There is a way out. Um, it will take a long-term view. I mean, some, we've got to have people take a long-term view to say, all right, here's where we are. Um, here's where we have to be in, say, 10 years, 15 years, and start methodically making the decisions that have to be made to, to get there. I mean, obviously, the pension liability is a big, big part of this, but it has to be dealt with. I mean, and um, one way or the other. And uh, it's probably a combination of taxes and it's probably a combination of some other spending choices that and priorities that, that the state is going to have to make. I mean, it's um, we have to make the same choices every day in our health system. I, I've got fi infinite uh, demands and finite resources and we all have to make those choices, right? And so um, my guess is we didn't make those choices every time we had a chance over the years and now we've got to start making them now and I think I think that's what it looks like to me. Some tough, real tough decisions ahead, Sean. Yeah, just real quick. I know you want to get to some questions, but um, I would I would add to that the people who serve in the Capitol and a lot of the staff who work there, a lot of smart people. Um, and I'm not just saying that because Senator Kaler's here, um, <laughs> but um, and I would include him in that bunch. But uh, at the same time. One of the biggest problems for the state of Illinois has been all of these things we hear about that are so important that everybody thinks that's a good way to spend money. Most people do agree on that at the Capitol, most of them. It comes down to how do you pay for those things, and quite often what's happened is the state doesn't cut the budget too often and too many of those programs, so what happens is we don't have the revenue to pay for it, the backlog of the bills gets bigger and bigger because nobody wants to cut. It's sometimes easier to raise taxes than it is to cut the budget, I think, because there's a lot of constituencies out there behind those things in the budget. So uh, pensions, you mentioned pensions, the state workers are not going to all retire tomorrow. The teachers aren't all going to retire tomorrow. So it's easy to put that bill off for decades. And that's what's happened. That's why it's gotten so big. But I know you want to move along. But there are a lot of good people there. I would say it's a good idea to reach out to those folks. Let them know you're, you're listening and paying attention. 
Thank you for the question, or the comment, certainly. Please. Thank you. Uh, I'm Suri. Uh, I'm an international student, actually. I've been in Peoria for three years now, and I've been in the U.S. for seven years. Sorry. Yeah. So I've been trying to understand this budget impasse, and uh, coming from India, uh, the government functions a little differently. We're a more centralized sort of economy where it's more federal and most of the states go with what the federal government does. And in the United States, it's more decentralized where each of the states have their own government and they almost act as independent countries. Now, with that said, I don't think Illinois is the only state that has challenges. Every state in the country does have challenges, right? Uh, why is it that Illinois is struggling so much when you have 49 other states, and I know that they have their own challenges, and I'm pretty sure that Illinois can actually learn certain things that other states are doing right. For example, Michael, you said you worked at, uh, in Wisconsin and you've been in other states other than Illinois. There's some things that we can probably pick up that other states are doing correctly. And even culturally, let's say the Midwest, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, they're pretty similar in, the terms of, in terms of demographic and stuff. So a lot of the things might be similar in the other states that it's in Illinois. So is there something that we're missing in Illinois that we can pick up from these other states that we're not doing right? And what are those that Illinois is missing out on? That is a big, fair question. <laughs> big question. All right. I'm an elected official. If you don't know, the regional superintendent is an elected position. And once elected, you then represent everyone. Children do not come to school with Ds or Rs on their back. And they're not labeled that way, nor are their families. You have to represent everyone. And when you represent everyone, I believe exactly what I said earlier about the values that I taught in kindergarten. You have to compromise. You are not going to get everything you want. And in Illinois right now, we're struggling with that essential concept of governance. What does it mean to talk to one another, compromise, and make hard decisions? And that is from someone at a lower level of government looking up, that, that is something that I think we struggle with. And, you know, and so the manifestation is that, of that is that we haven't balanced our budget, we haven't agreed to budgets and things like that. That becomes then, everything spirals down from there. And when that happens, then our economic growth stops. And then we don't have jobs, and we don't have businesses, and we don't have things like that that want to do things in Illinois. And once you start to lose your economic base and your tax base, then that starts then spiraling back to you know, those in, in, in the legislature who have to make decisions about the resources that we have. And so it just kind of feeds on itself. And I think that's what, to me, that's what's happened in Illinois over other states. You know, however they've done it, they've, they've made choices to, to put balanced budgets in place and set the soil so it's firm enough, or it's fertile enough that it will help you know, some sort of economic vitality in that state. And I think, to me, that's part of the difference in the, in the microcosm of what we're facing right now in, in Illinois. I think Governor Jim Edgar, during the Champaign Forum, I believe what he said, which resonated with me, when you find yourself in a hole, the first law of holes is to stop digging. 
I loved that because, wow, and compromise is not a dirty word. Please. My name is Craig Sabe, and I worked for 35 years for the Illinois Department of Transportation. I'd like to talk for a minute or two, if I can, about the uh, pension system. The Illinois state pension system is approximately 130 to 140 billion dollars uh, in the whole, and maybe rising at an even larger uh, number than we're aware of. For many years, politicians borrowed money out and skipped payments, knowing full well the likelihood that that money would ever go back was nil. In the private corporate world, you do that type of a shenanigan, you go to jail where you belong. In politics, you get a free pass. You can screw it up as much as you want and not be held accountable. At some point in the future, whether this is two or three years or five years or 10 years from now, this is going to implode and a lot of people are gonna get hurt badly. And if those uh, monthly pension payments going to state employees is cut back or stopped altogether, Hopefully the courts will step in and some of these people will be held accountable and go to jail where they belong. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. I'm Paul Gordon. Uh, full disclosure, I am a journalist, but I nonetheless have questions. And Craig, where they'll be held accountable is at the polls. Yes, but until they do, we just have to do it at the polls. Um, Beth, could you explain to us, please, what is the status of Senate Bill 1, first of all? What's the status of it? And then how will it affect the different districts around the Central Illinois? Thank you. I'm an educator, so I can get very uh, technical and use a lot of lingo and acronyms. So if you don't understand, please let me know. But every student has general state aid dollars that follow them. That number was set in approximately 2009 and it's 6,100 and about $14 per student. That number that follows the student is different based on where they live. If a district has strong property tax wealth, they don't get as much of that general state aid. If the property value, the EAV is not as strong, that district gets more. It's used as a vehicle to balance things out so things are more equitable. And at the school that I run um, at Wildlife Prairie, that's all I have. I get $6,114 per student times how many students that I have, and that's my budget. We have for years, this is from the 90s, that the formula worked this way. School districts would calculate it out, enter their number, and then that's how much they would get. And it's based on attendance. You take your three months of best attendance of students, and that's what that number is based on. That's why you see such strong attendance things going on in your communities to get kids to school every day. 
There has been a movement for decades to redo the formula, make it more equitable, make it fair. And so there are major organizations within this state that are called the I organizations, the Illinois Association School Administrators, the Illinois Principals Association, my organization, the Illinois Association of Regional School Superintendents, the business officials. They, they, they came together and said, we have to be proactive. In schools, we don't get out and promote ourselves and we're always playing defense. Let's play some offense. And they established a vision 2020 that as we look to the future of education, what could it be? What does it look like? And they had an idea for formula-based funding that is based on evidence. What is the research out there that says these are best practices in our school? And based on these evidence pieces is how we would fund. Because there are challenges that some kids come to school with every day. Kids that come from Easter Seals, kids that come hungry, kids that have not had health care have a toothache, kids that live in poverty are scared of violence every night. As a community, we I think we all know it, it costs more to educate a student that is living in a traumatic environment. And so at that point, we need to be looking at the evidence and say, where do we want to shift our dollars? And so that is what Senate Bill 1 attempts to do. It is an evidence-based formula, 27 indicators, I believe, of research that a school district would have to plug in their numbers, special education. It goes all different kinds of categories. And that's what would be used to determine the formula that would follow the student and hopefully make it more equitable. Beth, that, that is in contrast to Senate Bill 11, yeah. I believe that's Senate Bill 1124. 1124. Full disclosure, there are two there are two proposals out there. Senate Bill 1 has already passed the, the legislature did their jobs, passed Senate Bill 1, and that happened before the budget. Governor Rauner has said he's going to veto it because it has a provision in there that some folks call the Chicago bailout, other folks call a way to make it more equitable. And so that's embedded in Senate Bill one. In the other bill, Senate bill, and I believe it's 1124, someone will have to check me on that, but that bill does not have the Chicago provisions within it. It is an evidence-based funding model. And all of this started, I have to give a shout out to Senator Menar, who really tried to tackle this problem early on years ago and has been pushing and pushing and pushing this legislation to get this done. So it's mixed up in the whole budget debate. And how again will it affect different districts around here. How will evidence-based formula affect the districts around here? See if I can explain this as best I can using Peoria Public Schools as our model. Peoria Public Schools is 49.9% of Peoria County, so it's a significant population. They have lost over $21 million in the last 10 to 12 years because of the formula. When the state did not have enough money to pay the full bill from education, instead of use the word cut, they would call it prorated. So I didn't get $6,114 per student. I got 82% of that. So if you do the math, if you're heavily reliant on that number, which Peoria is because of their lower property tax values, they're disproportionately hit by that. 
Schools that don't rely on that, high property tax values like some of the schools in the collar counties up around Chicago, eh, it's not as important to them because they're not as reliant on that money from the state. They have very high property tax values. So disproportionately, schools are being slammed when that was prorated. And so the 100% funding of GSA, that is one step in a really positive direction. Although I'm sure that uh, one thing that Easter Seals would say, however, that we, they weren't paying their special education or transportation bills. So when you hear 100% of funding for education last year, we didn't get mandated categoricals, at least not all of them, for transportation and special education. Thank you. It is Senate Bill 1124. You are correct. Please. I want to give you a little background first of all, but my name is Joe Thomas, and um, and I was a physiology teacher for 33 years in District 150. Um, I've been a realtor for 54 years, so I started that when I was 21 years old. Worked my way through graduate school at ISU, selling real estate. Um, regarding the education situation, you're right on target on everything that you've been saying i it's the, the only thing that i would add maybe regarding the education is parents need to be held more responsible somebody needs to do something to help them understand what they need to be doing to help their children um, it's absolute here's what's absolutely shocking to me though regarding illinois Six Illinois governors have been charged with crimes during or after their governorships. Four were convicted. And of those, Blagojevich was the first one to be impeached and removed from office. Four of the previous governors went to prison. So when you were talking about somebody being punished, there's been some of that going on. The question is, though, what kind of oversight can be put into place to stop the, corrupt, the corruption before it damages our state further than it has already? That's the big question. In other words, somebody ought to be over, overseeing and seeing that these governors are screwing it up and get them out of there before they do the kind of damage that they've been doing. So that's that's my real question: is what can what kind of oversight could be put into place to bring that to a halt before it does continues to damage our state? Thank you for that, Joe. I think we will allow the fourth estate to speak to yeah, that. I, I don't know if I have the answer to that. We're no Wisconsin. I'll put it that way. But um, I think the. Um, Every time something has happened, I will say that the legislature has responded. There have been rules put into place, ethics rules, um, investigative uh, bodies put into place that, and they have that now. Ethics boards and, and investigation uh, investigators, I should say, of different agencies. But it's a huge thing. The government is a huge, um, especially Illinois state government, it's big. And so the chances of somebody coming in and doing something bad, just like it could be at one person in one school district doing something bad, you can get a few bad apples. Now, a lot of these bad apples were at the top, and you're right. I mean, this has been a problem. 
All I can say about it is I think it kind of starts with voters a bit, too. Um, Illinois almost revels a bit in that. I think people like to think of it as, oh, that's just Illinois government, or that's the way Illinois is. You know, they, they almost accept corruption in some way. I remember talking with a person out of Wisconsin, actually a reporter, who was absolutely offended about a scandal that had occurred there. And I'm thinking, our reporters here, we just look at it as, hey, you know, it's going to be another round of stories we'll be able to write about, and it's very interesting, people will read them. Um, but in Wisconsin, they took that as, as an affront, and uh, Illinois just doesn't do that. So I think I think the the last scandal, especially, the Blagojevich scandal, was the one that may have tipped that a bit, but we don't know till the next one happens. So. Okay, thank you. I just want to thank you to, for your service and ask if you want to come back and sub as we are having a uh, we are having a massive teacher shortage and especially a substitute shortage right now. So if you want to leave your name, <laughs> sir, please. Thank you, Tanya. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Senator Kaler, good to see you, Dave. My name is Charles Brown. I'm a uh, disabled vet, former teacher. I uh, worked in the casinos in Las Vegas for a while. I have a master's degree in social foundations of education, learning theory. So I think I have a certain perspective of having taught sociology. I try to look at the big picture and try and pull everything together to make sense. And I think one of the things that we've forgotten is that we were a production society when we first came here. We grew crops, we trapped animals, we pulled out minerals from the ground, we fished, but we produced things. And in about 200 years ago, 150 years ago, we started manufacturing from that production. We went from a primary economy to a secondary economy, and in the last 40 or 50 years, we've moved into this tertiary economy where everything's based on money. Money that exists, money that doesn't exist, uh, pretend money that's somewhere down the line that we're going to talk about it. And, and I'm not one to talk about government debt as a problem, because debt isn't a problem. Everybody has debt. I owe money on my house, but we make payments on it every month. I owe money on my car, and I make payments on it. It's deficit that's the problem. And somehow we're allowing our governments, state, city, federal, to spend money they don't have, money that they're not going to have, because someone's willing to lend it to them. And it's not real money anyway that's being lent, it's just paper. And we have three institutions in this country who don't produce anything, and yet they're the wealthiest sector of our economy. And that's the financial sector, banks, insurance companies, and brokerage firms, investment companies. They produce nothing, and yet they absorb all of the wealth. They take no risk. You know, that's the whole idea about loaning money is about risk. That's why you charge interest, is to make up for risk, right? Companies have no risk. Risk is something that people have. And when a company writes out a piece of paper and says, here's some money, there's no risk involved. Courts, without precedent, have ruled that mortgages have no value because there's nothing behind them. 
the promise to pay is not sufficient, or I should say, the promise to be paid is not sufficient uh, cause to be able to repossess a home, for example. And so my question is this. Why can't the state just declare bankruptcy and start over? Why can't the federal government, when we elect a new president, say this is a new administration, this is a new government? I don't owe what that bonehead before me spent. Why can't that be, you know, of course I know what the answer is. Well, that'll hurt our bond rating and then nobody will lend us any money again. So what? We start off new and we stop spending money we don't have. So that's my question, why can't we do that? Oh boy. <laughs> I'm not sure that filing bankruptcy would do anything though to make sure that when Beth retires, that the pension she's paid into is there, or Joe's pension that he worked for and paid into his whole career is there. And also, my paycheck comes from the state of Illinois, so I do want to ensure that. Well, well and I, I have how a selfish we get. And sometimes. I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> by one part of that conversation that I would like to throw out there, and that is um, not exactly an answer to the bankruptcy, but in the way you proposed about jobs in the new economy. There's a video called The New Economy. You all need to watch it. And it's the idea that. Um, we, we don't even know what jobs we're preparing kids for in our modern day school system. They don't even exist yet. My daughter that's a senior who wants to be a nurse, I have no idea what the healthcare field's gonna look like in 20 years as she progresses through her career. She could change her career multiple times. And I've always said, when, if George Washington came back today, the most comfortable place he'd be is in American high school because we run it first hour, second hour, it's not integrated, it's not hands-on. We need to revolutionize the way we deliver education because of the new job, we don't have those factory jobs that kids can go to right out of high school. We don't have agrarian jobs for kids to go to. We have to rethink that to refuel our economy. Our schools have got to, to pick up and revolutionize and be entrepreneurial and innovate. And I wanted to comment on that part of. Well, I, I also. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. We're going to ask I, you to come to the microphone. And while you're doing that, we'll talk to Sean. Yeah, just real quick. I was going to say, I, right now, in. Maybe somebody can correct me, but I don't believe the state can declare bankruptcy. I don't believe that's legal. But Congress, yeah, Congress could get involved, and there has been discussion of that in the past. But I don't think, at this point, serious discussion. Um, you're right. Schools shouldn't be teaching people to get jobs. Schools should be teaching people how to become adults, to learn the basic problem-solving skills, how to communicate how to you know, get along with your neighbors, things like that. And then job people, who, people who want to hire people for jobs, can come in and say, gosh, you're a good person. You've been trained to be an adult. I can train you to do a job, mm -hmm. all right? Mm -hmm. But you're right about one thing. There, are never, there will never be enough jobs for everybody anymore. Because of robotics, because of uh, automation, and just because there aren't the jobs. 
And there will never be the jobs unless you go to Disneyland. And there will always be entertainment jobs. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Jim, would you address, I know that a number of human service agencies in this region, since the state got a budget, have been meeting. Mm -hmm. where, where does it stand, where does the state budget pick up for payments to human service agencies and the court decrees that have been paying them. Have you guys, do you have a good working understanding of that? Like, where is that right now? I, I was on a call Monday where we, we talked quite a bit about that. Um, at this point, the, the consent decrees remain in effect until they're actually lifted. Uh, yeah, the, the, the governor would actually have to go and, the, and his administration would have to go before the federal judge and um, ask that the consent decrees be lifted at this point. That has not occurred, so they still they remain in place for the time being. Um, I think for many of us, you know, we're, we're grateful that there's a budget, but there are so many unanswered questions at this time. Um, I think as many folks know, uh, another federal judge has required the payment of uh, Medicaid, uh, I think the, the rate of $586 million a month for the next several months. Um, there's a lot of, and the state simply lacks that cash. So how does being in line for payment change under that? Uh, no one knows. Uh, so there, so there are many, many, many unknowns at this point that I think over the next several weeks and few months we'll start to parse out and we'll have some better sense. How many of those human service agencies, though, are at the point that they're just barely able to make payroll and maybe not able to pay their payroll tax, but or or on a shoestring at that. Sure. State. You, you, we have over the last couple of years have seen some organizations go completely belly up. It's a small minority. Uh, what we've seen instead is organizations uh, completely spend down their cash reserves. Uh, others go out and obtain lines of credit or extent or get additional lines of credit, and they are have been living on those lines of credit and paying them down as as payments trickle in. At some point, though, if payments continue to slow and get worse before they get better, especially now with the Medicaid payments, you might see, even though with, you know, there's a budget, yay, uh, you're going to see some organizations continue to, to suffer for a while and struggle for a while. Um, that's particularly de uh, c concerning because we, we can we may, as we move into the fall, see additional organizations completely fail. Even if everything was rosy right now, if, if, if the passing the budget had just changed everything overnight, the damage that has been done, the weakness that has been done in the human service delivery system is going to take years to correct and fix. Even those who have, who have had those strong lines of credit 
are going to have to rebuild, and especially as I mentioned earlier, their staff. It's really been the it's really been the brain drain and talent drain that we've seen this outflow of employees. Right. And some people contend that the face of what our communities have known as human services won't ever look the same again because some of those agencies won't ever come back. In fact, a good some of them won't. And nobody really has their arms around that yet. No, and what you're that right. Means. No one really knows what that means. Um, you either are going to have pockets of, of inside your community of folks who are completely unserved, that their particular needs are going to be completely unserved. Uh, there is, you know, talk, you know, I get calls often uh, from folks asking, you know, especially with children with autism, what state can I move to um, that will care for my child better than than Illinois. So I think those with some resource can literally flee the state. But for most of the folks of low income that we serve, that's just simply not an option. So they will simply go unserved and in many ways invisible in our community. Yeah, that's, that's probably the most difficult part right. of that. Mike, I'm wondering if you can speak to, as we kind of come to what probably is closer to the end of uh, our forum this evening, you talked about $143 million in back paid, unpaid. Was that just state workers that are insured? That is, um, that's a combination of Medicaid Okay. and for the the state state workers that are insured. So, so it's probably about 60% Medicaid, 40% state workers. Right. At what employees. point is care compromised? Well, I mean, right now, again, we, we've, um, you know, we're a large organization. We've got reserves, um, but we can only write it for so long. You right? bet. And, um, you know, we will, as we continue to have underfunded Medicaid and slow pay, we, we are getting into discussions about, you know, what programs can we continue, what programs can we not? We haven't made any of those choices yet, but, but along with everyone else, you, you know, you get into a contingency planning phase and that's where we are. And, you know, the other thing, I, I sort of said it in a different way, but, and the word brain drain came out, you know, we're also having trouble recruiting. That's, yes, because that's a big concern, when, I think. When we're unspoken. recruiting a physician or a nurse or whatever, and we, it's Illinois, I mean, honestly, there's a black eye there. Oh, how and, is that working, and it, though? And so it, it makes it challenging. Uh -huh. And we're losing, you know, if the, we're losing talented people that, you know, are making choices about that. And, and, and healthcare is one of those items, right, that you can work anywhere, right? Anywhere in the country, you, you get to make a choice because it's, the demand is everywhere. Yeah, there are two models, male and female, and knowing knowing the biology right. of that right. and, yeah, being a right. doctor or a nurse, right. you're so, good. So um, they have choices, and, and um, it's all of that, it's 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 piling up, so to speak. It's it's a, it's accumulating on top of each other, and, and it's very concerning. It's very concerning to us. Do we have any other um, questions or concerns we'd like to field from the people who are part of our joke? Can we do can we do the lady in the back of the room first? My name is Lorraine Musselman. Um, my comments have not 
specifically to do with the budget, um, but it applies to virtually everything that goes on um, in our state and federal uh, legislature. We, particularly in Illinois, we are playing in the legislature a game, a political gamemanship from one party to another, and both parties do it. Consequently, we get nowhere. So we've got one group in, in the state, let's just throw the bums out. Let's vote all the incumbents out and start over. Well, let's face it. Becoming a legislator takes a learning curve. So by the time you get somebody that finally knows what they're doing, you want to throw them out? Um, do you want to throw out the baby with the bathwater? We've got some good legislators down there. Why throw them out after, what, after two terms or whatever? Um, we need to keep them. On the other hand, we have the group Change Illinois who wants to um, revise the redistricting process to avoid the gerrymandering that creates an impossible situation for, in many cases, the opposite party because the districts are set up in favor of one political party or the other. If you change the redistricting process, you're giving both parties a better chance and they can do whatever they want and you can throw the bums out or bring in a new one. Uh, currently, in many cases, we have no chance to elect anybody else. It's a one-party situation. Wow. So, uh, I'm real afraid we're not gonna be able to outwit the political dysfunction of the state tonight. Thank you. But that's what we need to do. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Uh, Joe, you have something that you would like to say. If you would make your way to the microphone, then I want. Yes, did I see your hand? I'm Craig. You're Greg. You're Craig. 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 I'm sorry, Craig. Did you have something that you wanted to add? Uh, would you make your way to the microphone and then, sorry, I have Kevin Evans has sent us a tweet asking to hear from Senator Kaler as we wrap up a little bit this evening. Senator Kaler has sat very quietly and taken in a lot of what was said tonight. And um, I, I will let you consider that and I respect if you would choose not to. Uh, that's exactly what I wanted to make as a final comment. Uh, Senator Kaler sat here all evening listening to all these comments directed at state issues and state politicians. I wonder if he'd be interested in commenting on any of the things that we have talked about tonight. Craig, my apologies for getting your name wrong, too. That's okay. Sorry about that. Thank you, Senator Kaler. So much for my plan to sit back and listen. <laughs> it's hard to be a wallflower sometimes, isn't it? Um, well, I, I came to, to do that, to, to listen, to learn. I've, I certainly have uh, uh, learned a lot about some different perspectives. I think that's always important when you're in the legislature. Um, it's, it's a tough job. I will say this, and, and Sean you know, talked about this. We have some very good people uh, in the legislature, uh, both sides of the aisle. In fact, most people don't recognize that we have, uh, and I'll speak for the Senate, because that's where I am, very good relationships, Republican and Democrat. 
95% of what we do is bipartisan. And uh, I always look for a Republican co-sponsor on legislation. Uh, others look for me to be a, a sponsor for them because it means it's a better piece of legislation when you have the bipartisan support. What we have uh, is really a, a lack of leadership at this point. Uh, what the budget that came forth really, uh, I think, was a, a budget that the rank and file pushed forward more than anything because we were hearing from constituents that said we are not going to put up with this. And so many of us, both sides of the aisle, uh, both House and Senate said, you know, this is embarrassing. We are going to have a budget. And, uh, um, you know, we, we, we thought that, uh, well, I guess we knew that the governor was going to veto that budget, and we stood right there, and we, we overrode the veto. It doesn't have to be this hard. Uh, it does not have to be this hard. Uh, Illinois is a good state. We have a lot going for it. Um, I, I wish uh, the leadership would uh, w would get its act together because uh, as rank and file member of the Senate, I'm tired of having to push and push and push. Uh, we need some people. And I, and I will say this, uh, uh, I think I have uh, as my leader, the, the, the one that is, is really the best in, in terms of providing that leadership, and that's John Cullerton. Uh, and unfortunately, he had a partner in Christine Redonia who was an excellent legislator, an excellent person, uh, and both President Cullerton and, uh, and Minority Leader Redonia tried to do the grand bargain, and we got this close, and uh, the whole thing blew up, and uh, Christine Redonia was basically thrown under the bus, and she ended up quitting. That's our loss. That's our loss. Um, so I, again, I, I appreciate people that have come tonight. I, I just wanted to sit back and listen. I appreciate the panelists and, and your viewpoints. Um, um, I'll try to do better. That's all I can say. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being willing to listen. I think at this point, I'd like to give each of our panelists an opportunity to do some closing comments, whether you'd like to speak to something that you've learned here this evening or what, what you feel like your agency or agencies need going forward, what you're looking for, what you're hoping for, however you would want to couch that in conclusion, I would respect your opportunity to do that at this point. And I don't care what order we go in. I, I guess I would like to believe that we all learned something from this last impasse, and that we, you know, I would hope, as as Beth said earlier, you know, those kinds of things that we learned in kindergarten would would apply here. Um, I would hope that we learned that drawing li drawing lines in the sand and refusing to move beyond them is not productive. Uh, I would hope that we're not going to be in two years of election mode. Uh, but I unfortunately think that that's going to be the case. Yes, we have a budget now, but we're going to be, as, as the senator knows, very soon negotiating the next budget. And what's that going to look like? And what's that process going to look like? So I guess, you know, as, as a former educator myself, I would like to believe we all learned something from this and we're all going to do something different and better this next time. Uh, I'm not convinced that, that that's the case. Uh, certainly since um, 
these few weeks since the override, I, I've not seen the evidence of that, that we have learned well from this. Um, so I remain hopeful. I think when you live in Illinois, when, you know, my family's lived here since 1835, and we've been farming here since 1835, you know, we're kind of invested. <laughs> um, you would like to believe in the best and that your state is going to move forward and, and be the best it possibly can. So yes, I'm gonna remain optimistic, but I, I'm going to have to operate with the realism of recent history. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. One comment as an elected official is I would like to say, while I followed a legend, Dr. Jerry Brookhart, and tried to learn everything that I could from him, it does require what Malcolm Gladwell called those 10,000 hours. It's taking me a lot to learn, and I've surrounded myself with the best people I can, and, and, and it is hard, and it should be hard, because it's about finding that third way, not your way, my way, but that third way that we can all go down together, because we belong to each other. And I'd like to take a moment not talk to you as regional superintendent, but as a mom. We haven't even touched on higher education. I have a girl, beautiful daughter, who is a sophomore in college, and it's ugly at higher education and what they've endured. And I'm this mom trying to figure out, I go to work every day trying to figure out how to pay for my daughter's college. I have a senior that's going next year and Lord have mercy, I'll have two in college. And I just want, I want the same thing that all moms want. I want my children to be successful and to have opportunities. It doesn't matter what zip code you live in. Moms want opportunities for their kids and they want them to do better than they did. And there are a lot of us looking at each other now and on social media I see it and we're wondering will our kid be as well off will they be able to drive the car that I drive or have a house and will they give me a whole lot of grandchildren we're asking those questions and that's what I want that's what I want for those kids so as a mom it's a deep deep concern and as a last thought I had an idea that maybe we just get a bunch of school buses together and put those moms on the buses and send them down to Springfield during budget time and see how that might work I don't know oh but mercy you have to have some gallows humor sometimes because you do have to have moments of levity thank you superintendent Mike. you know I guess I'd like to start by um, it's a, uh, our elected officials have tough jobs. I mean, as, as easy as it is for all of us to poke at those, and it, in many cases that's fair, but, but ones could do that for jobs I hold too. So, um, you know, I appreciate it. I know it's a tough job. As a citizen, I guess I'm looking for courageous leadership, someone who understands that, uh, or individuals who understand, you know, we, we may have to make some short-term sacrifices, but take the long view and, and, and put the state on a path back to prosperity um, and, and a decent life, as, as Beth said, that we all want for ourselves and our, our families. And um, that's what I'm looking for, somebody to take the long view, put the plan in front of us as citizens, allow us to vote in officials who are willing to stick to that plan. So thank you. Thank you, Mike. Sean? Yeah, I'll just wrap up by saying uh, I, I think one thing people sometimes, it's a misnomer that nobody 
in government listens. And I would argue that uh, you have a lot of power. You may want to see taxes raised. You may not want to see taxes raised. You may want to see a bill passed. You may not want to see a bill passed. But reaching out to your lawmaker, phone calls, letters, emails nowadays, they go a long way. They do pay attention to that. So uh, I would just encourage you to stay involved or get involved if you're not already because they do listen to what you have to say. Thank you, Sean. I'm going to take a minute to thank some of the people that made this happen. Um, a huge big thanks to the hardworking staff at NPR Illinois, including Sean Crawford, who will also be up tomorrow morning delivering news to the NPR Illinois listening audience in Springfield. and the hardworking staff at AARP because without them, this whole series across the state would not be happening. So thank you to Bob Gallo and his group. And then I'd like to thank my team, uh, Cass Harrington, who will be up tomorrow morning delivering news to many of you, and Daryl Scott. Cody Schindler is in the back, making sure that we've captured this via audio. And Cindy Dermody worked her tail off to make this happen for us, along with Lisa Polnitz. And we thank them for their work. There are ancillary people we want to thank. Cody, Mike, and Mark, who are doing the live video streaming tonight. Officer, Peoria Police Officer McBride, who has had a chance to catch up on some of his reports in the back of the room, <laughs> looking out for us this evening. And of course, uh, the city of Peoria for allowing us to use this beautiful historic place this evening. Thank you. And if you had a cookie outside, we also need to thank Tresker's Bakery. And then before we go, let's give a big round of applause to the people who so gracefully took this panel tonight. Thank you. And each of you in the room are taxpayers, and I presume voters. And we appreciate your willingness to be here tonight to participate in this conversation and to make it real. Thank you.